Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with professional scientist and amateur musician, Dr. Lucy Jones. This podcast is made possible by individual sponsors on Patreon. If you're listening for the first time or the 21st time, please consider becoming a sponsor too at patreon.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. And now let's get to it. In our last episode, we talked about what happens on a fault to make an earthquake, but that's not what people feel. The shaking people feel is just one of the effects of the actual movement of the rocks at the fault. Today, we're digging into what you can expect from an earthquake. And you might be thinking, shaking, I'll get shaking. Yes, and it's not quite that simple, which is good news for you. Pretty good news. I mean, shaking is what comes through to you. And there's a lot of things that make the shaking less than it might otherwise be. But what is shaking? Shaking is a wave. It's a sound wave, just like what I'm making in the air as I'm talking. And the waves are generated by the earthquake on the fault and both how they are specifically generated on the fault and the way they travel from the fault to you and what they travel through are what determines what you're going to feel during the earthquake. So the fault is producing waves when one side slides past the other. Think about what happens when you have a piece of chalk, which is actually a type of rock, and an old-fashioned blackboard, which is actually another type of rock called slate, and you slide the chalk over the blackboard and you, you make a mark, but you also create a sound. A wave has been generated because of the friction between those two surfaces. And that wave travels from the chalkboard over to your ear and makes the air inside your ear vibrate. That's what's going on with much harder rocks on a usually a much larger scale during an earthquake. As soon as you said chalkboards and sounds, I thought of that old saying about nails on the chalkboard. Is that the earthquake in your analogy? Yes, but you need to add the idea of a rupture front. So as you draw the chalk down the board, it keeps on making a sound as it moves. So, and those waves are coming off from exactly where the chalk is hitting the slate. So do you remember that bigger earthquakes happen on longer faults? That means there's this rupture front traveling down the fault and the farther it goes, the bigger the earthquake and therefore you're producing waves and your earthquake lasts for a longer time. Okay, so can we say an earthquake sounds like nails on a chalkboard? Yeah, that really ugly sound, pretty much, right? Our perception of attractive versus ugly sounds has a lot to do with the frequency of the sound waves that produce. The frequency is how fast the ups and downs of the passing wave go by you. And if a sound has just one dominant frequency, it's in a nice regular pattern, we hear that as a pitch and we think of it as a nice sound. But if there are a lot of different frequencies and they overlap each other and they interfere with each other, we hear it as noise, like the nail on the chalkboard. Earthquakes put out many different frequencies because of all the different irregularities on that potentially very uneven fault surface. So when you talk about frequencies, I think about music. Pitch is the same thing as frequency. And you're a musician. Is this where seismology and music come together here at the idea of frequencies? 
Yes. I mean, I just find it amazingly cool that the sounds I can make when I pull a bow across a string are governed by exactly the same equations as the waves coming off a fault when you have what's called stick-slip motion. When you're using the same type of friction I make on the bow. Of course, as a musician, I work pretty hard to get those regular intervals on the wave so that it will sound attractive. I hope people don't call the sound I make on my instrument ugly noise. And let's just, just for those listening, you play a instrument called the viola da gamba. Could you tell us about that for just a moment? Okay. The viola da gamba is sort of like a cello, but it's, it's like a cross between a cello and a guitar. It's actually more closely related to the guitar. It has frets, it has six strings, but it's got a bow and it's played with a bow and held like a cello. And, you know, think about it. When you have a large cello, you get a lower note than on a small violin, which means that a long fault, i.e. a big earthquake, is going to give you a lower note or lower frequencies than what you get in a little earthquake. And that's one of our big differences between big and small earthquakes. Earthquakes produce lots of frequencies, but the lowest end is governed by how long the fault is. Okay, so frequencies clearly matter to musicians. A whole lot, yes, okay. <laughs> can, can you describe how frequency matters to us, those waiting for the shaking waves generated by the earthquake? It's the frequency that controls whether an earthquake has a rolling motion or a jerky motion. So how does that matter? Okay, so well, that one level, it's, that's what you feel. And because the high frequencies get damped out more quickly uh, than the low frequencies, just like you can hear a, you know, a drum beat much farther away than a high frequency note. So when you're a long ways away from the earthquake, it's going to feel more like rolling motion. So that's just what you feel. But does it matter? I mean, does, does it change what actually happens because the frequencies are different? It does because buildings also have frequencies. Really, just about everything has a frequency, a, a frequency that tends to make that thing vibrate. Now, a musical instrument is carefully shaped to get the vibrations into that regular pattern that's going to sound nice, but everything can vibrate. So when a tall building sways in an earthquake, it has its own resonant frequency that's mostly determined by how tall it is. So we have our short single family homes respond to higher frequencies and the high rises downtown are gonna be responding to lower frequencies than our small houses. And when you say that they respond, what is it they're actually doing? When the, when the waves come in at higher low frequencies, what's the reaction of these buildings? Okay, well, when the wave comes through and it's at different frequencies than the resonant frequency, it'll move the building a little bit and as the wave passes by, that's it. If it's getting close to the resonant frequency of the building, we say it excites the building. And the building won't just move right then, it'll keep on moving for a while. And the amount of motion can build up. And we have seen in some earthquakes that if there's a lot of energy at just one frequency band, the buildings that respond to that frequency band are much more badly damaged than the bigger or smaller buildings. What does this information tell us about how we can anticipate what we might experience? What it's telling us most importantly is that big earthquakes and small earthquakes are really quite different. In the small earthquake, 
we get all that high frequency energy and our little houses go bang and things are thrown off of shelves and, and you know, maybe cracks through the building. When we have the really biggest earthquakes, you also have those high frequency shaking near the fault, but those die off with distance. And then at some distance away, those are gone, but you still have all this long period energy now. So we're going to be having a huge amount of energy coming in at the resonant frequency of really tall buildings that have never experienced that really low frequency energy because they only come in the biggest earthquakes. So we really haven't put our big buildings through the really long period energy that's possible. And, you know, we even think that maybe the Los Angeles basin, which is what they're, you know, 20 miles across, it might actually catch some of those really long period waves and even amplify them a bit. So we can imagine a situation when you're some distance away from the San Andreas earthquake, all the single family homes will be fine, but some of our tall buildings or really tall freeway interchanges uh, could be much more severely affected. So it's, it's just getting to understand that the really big earthquake isn't just a Northridge size earthquake scaled up. It's going to be different in some pretty important ways. So we can take solace in understanding that different kinds of earthquakes give us different kinds of shaking based on the size of the earthquake and the size of the waves produced. And our distance from the fault will determine what we might feel as it relates to those kinds of waves. And we should also feel better about the fact that the earthquakes that we feel more regularly, the ones that occur many times per year in Southern California and across the state, the smaller earthquakes really are not as damaging to our single family homes, even though they might feel jolty. And even in the biggest earthquakes, our single family homes will likely do just fine relative to the larger structures that are more affected by low frequency waves. That's right. And I think the other good news is that our small single family homes have experienced very high levels of high frequency shaking because we get those in the magnitude sixes. When we get to the even bigger earthquake, they probably aren't gonna be hit by too much worse than that. The extra energy in the big earthquake is coming in through the long period waves, which aren't gonna do a lot of damage to us individually. So for, for yourself individually in a single family home or an apartment building that's only two or three stories, we already know what shaking those buildings will receive and how to build them to withstand that. Just make sure you've been retrofitted or built to the most recent code. So when we get that extra damage that we know is coming in the big earthquake, yeah, it's going to be there, but it's probably not where you live. Well, that is good news. As always, we could go on forever on this topic, so we'll have to do it again. Until next time, I'm John Buery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows, and please become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee, and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.